0: Welcome to the guelph politicast i'm adam a donaldson of guelph politico today i talk to jennifer hesch who is the vice president and chief negotiator of the upper grand elementary teachers federation of ontario plus we have david del duco the vice president secondary from the wellington unit of the ontario english catholic teachers association so you may have heard that there could be a teacher strike coming in the near future Another disruption to the learning of Ontario students is the last thing that parents and guardians want. But frankly, it's also the last thing that teachers and education workers themselves want. And if we're being honest, it's probably the last thing the government wants to. Having said that, though, it does feel like we're on a path to inevitable job action with unions making demands that the government feels are exorbitant. Teachers want to raise, they want more resources. And they want some assurances about their safety. The government, meanwhile, well, they want to spend as little as possible given the deficit, inflationary pressures, general concerns about affordability. So the question of the hour is, can all sides find a middle ground? That is the topic of this week's Guelph Politicast. As it stands on the day that this podcast is going into production, only the education workers represented by the Canadian Union of Public Employees are in a strike position. Around 55,000 education workers, including custodians, early childhood educators, and administration staff, will be in a legal strike position on November 3rd. But that doesn't mean that they will strike. There could be work to rule, or there could be some kind of other job action, and it's worth noting that in 2019, CUPE and the government reached a deal at the last minute before a strike could begin, so history could repeat itself, or this could be the canary in the coal mine. But all of this is a roundabout way of saying that at this point in time, no one really knows what's going to happen in the weeks and months to come. So what can the past tell us? Well, in late 2019 and early 2020, there were a series of one-day walkouts by teachers, and they were having an effect. Education Minister Stephen Lecce was being pushed to end the impasse, and near the end, he started withdrawing government demands for higher class sizes and mandatory online learning. That's when we got hit by COVID-19, and mandatory online learning became a fact of life for millions of Ontario students, at least as a temporary measure. It also poured a bucket of cold water on any job action, and by the end of March, all the teachers' unions had a new agreement. It's probably safe to say that the concerns of the unions have changed markedly since the start of the pandemic, but Lecce is still the minister, and the government is still hesitant to meet teachers' demands, and from the outset... Striking seems inevitable. But is it, though? This is among the many questions for Jennifer Hesch and David Del Duca on this week's edition of the Guelph Politicast. We will ask the local union leaders about what the CUPE No Board Report means for local schools here, what it means for the negotiations with the other unions, and whether CUPE, making the first move, will have an effect on labour solidarity. We will also talk about the issues that the unions are negotiating for, why compensation is fundamental to the negotiations, and why safety is such an important consideration, whether it's COVID-19 protections or the threat of violence. And finally, we will talk about the search for positive signs in the negotiations, whether there's unfinished business between teachers and leche from the previous round of negotiations, and whether our guests feel hopeful about these current round of talks so i caught up with jennifer hesch and david del duca earlier this week via zoom okay uh i'm now being joined by uh jennifer hesch of the elementary teachers federation of ontario hi jen
1: hi sorry i was muted
0: (laughs) (laughs) it's okay it's only almost three years and we're still Getting a hang of it. It's uh, <laughs> and we're also being joined by David Del Duca of the Ontario English Catholic Teachers Association. David, thanks for joining us today. Good morning. Um, uh, to get started, um, I, know, I know people sort of tune into the news and, and sort of hear things, and maybe they're half paying attention, and um, so, so it doesn't entirely penetrate. But just so we kind of start on the same playing field um CUPE is to this point the only union um and maybe I'll ask you to just answer this first David since you're on my screen but sure. uh CUPE is so far the only union that is a produced a no board report or asked for a no board report and thus is in a position to take uh job action um and they are thus far the only union who are working with the province through a moderator is, is that correct
2: uh, to my knowledge, yes. Uh, we know that there are several education unions that are uh, bargaining this time uh, at various stages. But yeah, I think your, your statement is accurate that they're they're out in front, they're mediating and they've uh, you know filed the no board report. Mm-hmm. And um, I'll ask Jen this
0: question uh, after I get the answer from David. If CUPE uh, goes out in a couple of weeks, uh, is your school board affected?
2: Uh, certainly the Catholic school board is affected. Yes. Uh, QP members in our board are, um, mostly custodial staff. Uh, not all custodians are QP members so that we do have some QP or sorry, some custodians who are not QP workers. Uh, but I would say the overwhelming majority of schools are staffed by QP custodians. And Jen, uh, the elementary schools in the upper grand board,
0: uh, would they be affected if QP goes out in a couple of weeks?
1: Yes, absolutely. Um, it would have a big effect uh, on the way the schools are run. Um, you know, we talked about um, earlier about custodial staff, but uh, there are a lot of QP members that do other things in the board um, involved with the schools. So it will have a huge impact for sure.
0: Mm-hmm. And um, maybe without betraying any confidences or anything like that, are are there plans in place um in in your schools if and when that happens right now
1: that would be up to the school board to figure out that's not that's nothing and i haven't had anything shared personally with me um we haven't had our labor management meeting yet with the board so that's usually when we find out about stuff sometimes they're very good about emailing us things ahead of time if something's going on with the school or the water's off and they have to shut it down that sort of stuff but um I haven't heard anything yet. Um, I'm hoping they have something in place, a plan in place. That would be great if they did. Um, But I can't answer that.
0: And David, I imagine it's much the same over at your schools.
2: Uh, Similar, I think there's a lot of speculation as to what might happen. uh, But as far as confirming any specific details of the plan, uh, we don't have that yet.
0: Since you're on my screen, David, I'll just uh, throw this to you first. Is this kind of compounded by the fact that... um, as we're sitting here today, we're a week out from electing a new school board. Is 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 that an issue?
2: Ah, <laughs> oh, that's a really good question. Um, I, I think that the overwhelming, again, I say majority. We don't have a whole lot of trustees, at least not relative to Upper Grand and other places around Ontario. But I think you know most of the incumbents have put their name forward, and and based on municipal election history, I think they're likely to return. So I don't know that uh, a lot of that uh, is influenced one way or the other. I I don't think the trustees election is going to have an impact on the ultimate plan. And I don't know that, um, you know, the QP bargaining is going to have an impact on the election itself. Uh, So I I think they are kind of disconnected. Mm -hmm. Um, But I, I don't want to minimize the importance of You know, provincial legislature being recalled the day following that election, and what impact that might have on on bargaining.
0: And Jen, same question to you. And and uh, I I appreciate David's um, acknowledgement that there is going to be some relative continuity in the uh, the Wellington Catholic Board, but in the Upper Grand Board, like over half of the Guelph trustees are are going to be new uh, next week.
1: Yeah, there are a lot of people running this time around. Um, so it's going to just, it'll be interesting to see what happens, how that turns out. <laughs>
0: okay, fair <laughs> enough. Uh, it, so, so we kind of laid the table of where we are at now. I want to look back for a minute. And I was thinking about how the last round of negotiations ended up. And Jen, I'll ask you to comment first. Um, given the fact that there was job action for weeks several weeks and then we get hit by covid and everything shuts down and within a, about a week and a half two weeks all the unions made new agreements i'm wondering if there's a and and it could be just from your personal point of view maybe you're not going to comment on, on on behalf of the whole union about this but i wonder if there's a feeling of unfinished business that the 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 last time there was a negotiation, it wasn't, a, it didn't sort of end sort of naturally. There was this unnatural um, circumstance that sort of leaned on you to reach an agreement because there were bigger fish to fry. So coming up on this now, uh, these negotiations, is there a feeling like, you know, I, I, I guess unfinished business is what I'm kind of thinking about, the term I'm kind of thinking about and where we are now.
1: Well, anytime you go into bargaining we go into bargaining in good faith. Um, it's not always the same on on the other party's behalf, but we're hoping that negotiations will go well. Um, at this point, um, we don't even have a central list, provincial list because um, we had to file a complaint to the Ontario Labour Relations Board because the government and our, our central provincial union couldn't come to an agreement about a couple of items that they feel uh, should be on the list, or what should be local and what should be provincial, um, and okay. so we don't even have a, a central list yet. So bargaining is at a halt right now, um, and and locally we can't move forward with bargaining until we know what's happening at the provincial level. So um, we definitely have good intentions on our end, and I hope to you know get the best deal that we can for our members as always, um, and hopefully get what our members have asked for. Um, but at this point, there's, we're at a standstill.
0: <laughs> uh, David, any thoughts for, uh, from you, you know, maybe about uh, unfinished business with the last series of negotiations?
2: Um, if I had to, you know, look at that phrase, unfinished business, I think with any bargaining, there's always unfinished business, right? It's mm-hmm. it's a collective agreement. You achieve some collaborative uh, uh, output and there are, is always a perception that you left something on the table. I think that, uh, and and this is probably the case in, in all negotiations, all parties involved, you know, do we have, you know, unfinished business left on the table? I, I, you know, bringing into that conversation, the whole concept of the pandemic and its impact right at the very end, I think there were a lot of people who were wondering if we would have held off on signing any kind of provincial agreement until we got a little further into the pandemic, as challenging as it would have been, Um, you know, looking at public perception, it was through the roof, you know, everyone thought teachers and education workers were the heroes, uh, about a month and a half after we ratified that central agreement. And so, you know, if hindsight's 2020, but there's, there's no way that we could have predicted that public perception was going to improve to such a high extent. And also, rapidly declined. you know. I think teachers became vilified very shortly thereafter, every time there was any conversation about closing schools and that sort of thing. So you know, as far as what's left on the table, I don't know. I think we, a lot of really good things happened in the last round of bargaining, at least for the Catholic teachers. I think there was a uh, good effort between the union and the trustees to kind of work together to mitigate any cuts that may have been coming down the pipe from a conservative government. And I'm not sure if that same relationship exists. I hope it still does. Um, because it's going to be a really tough round of bargaining this time around as well. All right, well, let's talk about the bargaining. And I want to leave
0: compensation kind of separate for the moment because I, I do want to address that kind of on its own. But in terms of some of the, of the I don't want to call them demands, but I, I guess I will, like some of the demands that the CTA is 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 looking at in, in this round of bargaining, what, what's, and maybe you can, uh, as Jen was alluding to, can maybe separate into, you know, things that, all boards, all teachers, no matter their board are looking at, and maybe some things that you are looking at specifically in, in our local Catholic board?
2: Um, Yeah, compensation is always the big one, right? So if, if we talk about that <laughs> separately, uh, I don't really have a comment. No, uh, I, I think that it's generally speaking, it's status quo, right? Like we, we want to maintain the current things that we have. Um, some things that came out of the last round of bargaining, everyone remembers that there was a big push to increase class size. Uh, certainly at secondary, there was a big push to uh, mandate, e-learning, those are things that still kind of exist. You know, class size conversation is ongoing, no matter what round of bargaining um, and and e-learning, you know, ensuring that those e-learning courses are treated in a, a fair way. Um, so I, those are two things that kind of jump off the page right away that aren't necessarily linked directly to compensation, but they do have a very significant impact on staffing, right? If you decrease class size, you need more teachers, that can be a compensation issue, or at least a money issue. But when it comes to e-learning, same thing. If um, if we're allowing classes to rise in e-learning, well, then we have a, a smaller need for teachers, and, and that may not be the best experience for students either. So, right. you know, those are class size, e-learning, those are some issues that that are still kind of kicking around. And and I would argue that the, the pandemic highlighted a lot of other pieces as well. Um, we know that uh, Leche likes to spin a little web when he talks about sick leave. Um, And I I just want to make sure that everyone understands the difference between, um, you know, personal illness and short term disability. You know, this 131 days that he keeps throwing around is those are two completely separate numbers that have been combined out of convenience for him to try and, you know, persuade the public that we have it too good. Mm. And it's actually false, right? Like personal illness is different than short term disability. And and so I think, again, status quo is what we want to maintain for our most vulnerable members. If they get cancer, for example, you want to make sure that they're supported through that treatment. And uh, and when people think that it's just fr- frivolous sick days, uh, that's a completely different story altogether.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Jen, uh, is there anything you'd like to add, maybe especially from the point of view of uh, the elementary side of things and the, the separate school board side of things?
1: Um, so... Again, class size, as, as Dave mentioned uh, earlier, that's always going to be num- one of our number one priorities is to reduce class size. Um, and that's to support our students. It's very difficult if you have a class of 34 or, th- or 38, in some cases, 40 uh, students. And then you have students with IEPs and special needs. So that's another issue that we're always going to be um at the, it's always gonna be at the forefront of what we're gonna try and get supports for those students who have special needs in our classrooms, more supports, because we don't have enough because the funding has been cut over over the last several years. Um, as well, you know, we wanna make sure that um, health and safety precautions are are being taken and, and making sure our members are protected, uh, especially in terms of violent incidents, which are on the rise in, in our classrooms um, in every board doesn't matter Catholic or or public. Um, and so those are the things that we're always focused on. Uh, those are the main things. Uh, compensation, that's another story. That's um, people need to be able to keep up with inflation. And, and our members are basically, um, since I've already started talking about it, <laughs> our members are basically taking a pay cut. It's not an increase when they get a 1% salary increase. It's actually a cut for them because it's not keeping up with inflation and um our members are are struggling and mm-hmm. um whatever Lecce wants to tell everybody that we're the best compensated teachers in Canada we're actually one of the lowest paid um he just likes to make things up so <laughs> <laughs> that's just the way he, he, he does.
0: <laughs> I would just like to point out too that the same bill 124 that a lot the nurses and the nurses organizations are always protesting to does also apply to teachers as well so the you know the fact that maybe um there's a possibility that that might crack in the process in these negotiations too is a sign that maybe even the government appreciates that they're um that would that that they're in the wrong on that um, before we get to compensation, though, Jen, I, I'm hoping you, maybe you can expand a bit on some of the concerns about safety. I, I think we all appreciate that, you know, COVID um, produces a lot of safety concerns and certainly anecdotally on social media. We're seeing people talk all the time about, you know, uh, my kid came home with COVID, <laughs> um, you know, our, uh, you know, the, the classroom got hit hard. Somebody comes back from the weekend and starts coughing and then half the, the class is out by midweek. Um but especially the, the element of violence, too, and, and what teachers are facing in terms of, like, physical threats to, to their safety. Uh, I feel like that has sort of been uh, an undercurrent for years that we haven't really quite gotten uh, addressed. Can you talk a bit about what teachers are facing in terms of those kinds of threats?
1: Yes, yeah, so we, in terms of COVID, I mean, it's rampant, it's, it's not over the pandemics not over, despite what the Ford government wants everyone to believe. And unfortunately, um, you've, you've got students coming back, and not wearing masks, because they're not required to anymore. And some staff are not wearing masks, some still are, and it's, they're still g- given the option to have a mask uh, provided for them from the board, which is good. But I mean, the numbers are are through the roof and we have entire, you know, almost entire classes out sick. They're having trouble finding uh, supply teachers to cover uh, they, for staff who are sick as well. So it, it's it's not over it, and it's not getting any better than it was for sure. Um, but in terms of violence, same thing. It's, it's not getting any better. I was just on the phone with a member yesterday that was punched in the face by a student um, and then was told by their principal, no, it's okay, you don't need to fill out a, a violent incident form, which is not correct. That's actually illegal. Um, they're required by board policy and the Ontario... Or, um, uh, occupational health and safety act are required as well and members can actually get themselves disciplined if they don't fill out these forms but they're being discouraged to do so because it happens to be a grade one or grade two student, so that doesn't count or it's a student with special needs which the occupational health and safety act actually supersedes that it doesn't matter if somebody has special needs worker safety comes first and our members unfortunately kind of fall to the wayside and 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 in our profession it it's sort of ignored um or you know brushed under the carpet that well it's not really a problem.
0: And to be clear, it's about having that paper trail of of knowing where perhaps an issue originated It's not necessarily about assigning blame to the kid.
1: No. And it's about support for the right. student. That, that's why right. we need to have those reports filled out so that we know there's an issue and we can address it with the board and say listen there's a student here who, at this school that needs more support or the school needs more support and that's how you you can try and get more EA support ECEs and that sort of thing at the school so that that student doesn't go through the system and then end up being you know the- Right. a a target on their back sort of thing that I don't want this student in my class because I know that they punch people in the face all the time or that sort of thing. So it's really about supporting staff and supporting the students.
0: Grade eight or nine, it's a bit late to be getting people help. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. yeah.
1: And you're quite bigger then. So.
0: (laughs) Yeah, that's right. Uh, David, any uh, particular issues um, you want to raise in in terms of safety is are your teachers getting a lot of, you know, Hey, walk it off champ kind of, uh, treatment. It sounds like,
2: um, I, I can't say that I've heard anything, uh, where, you know, there's that toxic masculinity of walking it off. Uh, we do have similar scenarios where principals are trying to discourage paperwork. Um, and again, it's, uh, their hands are tied too. you know, they're not legally permitted to suspend students who are in the primary grades. And as a result, they don't, feel it's necessary to have that paper trail if there's no outcome. Right. Uh, just to to piggyback on, on something that Jen alluded to, you know, the violence in the classrooms, uh, I, I don't think the general public understands the significance and the severity. You know, again, yesterday I heard a story of a classroom that needed to be vacated while a student absolutely trashed the classroom. Um, it looked like, you know, a, a, an animal was in there uh, destroying resources, tipping desks, throwing things and the plan for some of some of these students with this violent behavior these escalations is to vacate the classroom Mm. so the board and the teacher and support staff are all aware of the violent conduct to the extent that the plan is to remove students as targets for their own safety that is the plan um and that plan needs to be revisited every time there's a violent incident So that, you know, health and safety has measures in place. It's just that I don't think people understand the significance of the violence in the classrooms. Um, As far as, you know, COVID is concerned, anecdotally, similar to what Jen had suggested, you know, uh, early September, it was really bad. Um, I know that parents want continuity, they want uh, predictability, and uh, we also want the same thing. But it's really difficult to deliver continuity and predictability when uh COVID is making its way through a school or through the board um, teachers get removed you have an occasional teacher who's doing their best with the lesson plans left behind but because of the occasional teacher shortage we're often getting unqualified adults in the classroom they're not teachers they can't follow a lesson plan uh, they're babys- babysitting and mm-hmm. so what's the best way to maintain continuity make sure teachers and students are healthy and that they're protected, and right now I don't feel like there's enough in place to ensure that that's the case.
0: Before getting into the con- uh, the, the compensation question, um, if if it comes down to, uh, I guess some of these HR concerns you're talking about health and safety, you know, making sure there are enough teachers on staff, or recognizing it's not an either or proposition, but if it was that versus like. Getting the total compensation you're looking for, if you know the the ministry team comes forward and says, "Okay, you can get one, you can have one, not the other," you know, just speaking for yourself, you know, wh- where do you land?
2: Um, I, that's yeah, that's I would say you're absolutely <laughs> right. This is not an either or, and to go black and white on this is impossible. But I would say that uh, um, starting from compensation, there is a certain amount of respect that comes along with that conversation. And I think if uh, teachers and education workers are respected to the extent that they are compensated to what they believe to be fairly, then it changes the entire complexion of the education system. People feel supported. They feel like they are valued. They feel more confident in what they can do if they know that the government has their back and puts... The money where their mouth is you know I'm, I'm sick and tired of politicians getting up and saying oh way to go frontline workers you've done an amazing job and then they get to the bargaining table and we say okay show us that we're doing an amazing job and they say oh no 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 we don't have that sorry and yet they do you know they underspent an education last year by five billion uh, sorry education and healthcare last year and this year again there's a two billion dollar surplus predicted they're saving tons of money show us at the table that you value our work and our work will reflect that value. Um, I'm not saying that we absolutely must be compensated to work even harder, Mm -hmm. but I think that respect demonstrated through fair compensation goes a long way to retain the teachers we currently have and to try and recruit more teachers, which will help solve all those other staffing problems. So it's not just about dollars and cents, it's about respect, it's about um, recruitment, it's about retention, all of those things that that um, help to solve some of the other problems in education right now. Well, Jen,
0: David says compensation is, uh, I guess, foundational uh, to, uh, I guess, is the place to start in order to address all these other problems. So do you, would you agree with that?
1: I absolutely agree with everything that Dave said. And um, as far as I'm concerned, I wouldn't agree to a, one or the other. I would say we need both we need to have both uh, health and safety measures in place and better health and safety measures in place. And, and also compensation. They're both very important uh, for our members to be able to do their jobs and to be safe at work.
0: Well, Jen, since you're on my screen here, I'll start uh, this uh, question with you. Um, I, I imagine you can conjure in your mind, all the arguments against, um, an increase in compensation more than the 1%. Uh, I imagine a lot of parents out there will be talking to reporters from out of their cars and talking about how they don't want classroom disruptions. Um, They, you know, they don't want to be keeping their kids at home again. Uh, they don't want lessons disrupted. These things, no matter how many different issues there are, always do seem to come down to the question of compensation. So, I mean, thinking ahead to, how this inevitably plays out in, in the media sphere, I guess, if you're talking to parents, if they're listening, I hope they're listening about why the compensation piece is the most important and why teachers uh, really do need that increase that they're bargaining for. I guess, what's your message?
1: I think people need to realize that um, teachers are highly educated and have up you know two to three degrees in in some cases and if you're in any other profession and you have that much education they are highly compensated for that and the comparison it's very un- we're undervalued um and people don't seem to realize how much education teachers have to have um especially now because it's more of a competition like If you don't have your master's, you might not get hired over somebody else who does type of thing. Um, And so I think it's, it's important. Um, And it's, again, we have some of our members, they don't understand that we have a salary grid and some of our members are working two and three jobs to, to make ends meet because there, there are new teachers that are coming in and, you know, can't afford the cost of living right now because of inflation. And so that's something else to, to remember that we're not all making the same amount of money. Right. It's a grid. And you have to work your way up on that grid, usually 12 to 14 years, depending on on what your grid is and your board um, before you're even making what some people will consider decent money. But as far as I'm concerned, it's, it's, it's not what our members deserve uh, to be compensated for. they, They deserve more, and they deserve to be treated with respect, as Dave said earlier.
0: I remember being in elementary school myself, taking French in grade four, and I remember our French teacher was not, that's our school's French teacher. She was kind of the uh, regional French teacher. She did three or four different schools, depending on what day of the week uh, it was. Um, But David, uh, I'll throw it to you, Um, when you're talking to parents about the importance of compensation, um, what what are you talking about?
2: Uh, equity. Um, you know, I, I think it's no secret that education and nursing are two of the most obvious examples of female-dominated professions. Um, I have a daughter, and I have a sister who's a teacher, and I have lots of family and friends who are teachers. Um, and, and I would hate at any point during my daughter's career path to tell her don't go into education because the government is going to create a law that interferes with your ability to earn what you feel is valuable. Um, and they will target you as a female. And I really hope that the public understands that this is what we would, uh, you know, perceive to be an attack on female-dominated professions. Mm-hmm. And if I'm wrong, they can prove me wrong. Change the law, right? Right. So what we have currently is a government that is willing to change the law, and and they've already done it, by the way. Again, people might not know all the details, but there is a law, the School Board's Collective Bargaining Act, that was created coming out of bargaining in 2013. And that law stated, collective agreements are going to be three-year agreements, unless they change by mutual agreement. The government autocratically, unanimously, unilaterally imposed a four-year deal. In this round, because they have a majority and they thought that it wasn't necessary to seek any kind of input. So they changed the law to change how bargaining goes. They changed the law to impose that 1% restriction on bargaining. So, what we have, and what I would say to the general public, is we have a government in place who is willing to abuse their power to change law to impose what they feel is fair. Uh, on a group of mostly female workers. Uh, And if any of that sits wrong with you, then I think, you know, we need to change the government, first of all, but we also need to support these female dominated professions, so that our young girls can actually earn what they are worth. And, uh, and, you know, (laughs) inflation is just a whole other argument, and I can spend a lot of time on that. But I think that's a really obvious argument. I think the the um, the hidden argument, the one that I would like to you know shine a light on, is is the whole issue of equity and how poorly women in our society are being treated and almost targeted by these changes in law. I would also say
0: inflation. Sorry, Jen. I, I just, just before I let you, I, I just wanted to add: inflation is a both sides argument too, because the government's saying we can't approve increases because of inflation. Teachers are saying we need those increases because of inflation. So, it's. Um, it's almost that zero sum when we're talking purely on inflation but jen uh you wanted to add something
1: i just wanted to say thank you to dave for bringing that comment forward because it's i feel it it's valuable to hear that coming from from a man versus coming from a woman and i think that it's really important that people understand understand that so thank you dave
0: uh yes i i would agree and jen since i so rudely cut you off um i'll, I'll let you take first crack at this question um which is it you know we're, we're always looking for maybe positive signs um and minister lecce uh certainly the master of the the missive uh, he's always quick with sort of like a a written statement um perhaps not so much of you know sitting down like this and talking about what he's thinking as the minister but um if you're looking for a positive sign from the government that, that they are looking to work with teachers to get the best possible outcome, what's a what's a good first step that our government could take?
1: Um, good first step would s- to be stop making up lies <laughs> and just throwing things out into the media. And that's part of the issue is bargaining in the media. That's not that's not fair bargaining. Um you keep the bargaining at the bargaining table. You don't talk about it to the public. Um, but it's all, it's fear-mongering and it's, you know, um, you know, gaslighting and, and getting the public all worked up so that um, they're against us and public opinion is against us. And and like Dave said earlier, like we are, we are vilified every time. We go into a round of bargaining. They started this back in the summer, telling us to, to get back to school. We're not even in a strike position um, and saying they they better show up for school and, and making the public think that teachers were going to be going on strike when we're not even in a position to do that yet. Um, and so that's the kind of thing like they need to make those to make it fair be honest and stop bargaining in the media and stop making up lies and and gaslighting the public against us but that's that's been their tactic every time that's not new we're we're used to being vilified i don't like it but that's what happens every single time right and i and i feel for my members as well because they're putting up with it um you know it. yeah so that's my opinion
2: (laughs) david what's your opinion uh on you know the positives coming out of bargaining um what i would say is the whole concept of mediation and potential arbitration i think it's a, a recognition of the challenges at the table i think it's a recognition that um uh there's A possibility of a lose, lose, lose here, right? And we're kind of talking about compensation, we're talking about legislation and and what the government can do. If they take a really heavy hand, that's a a PR nightmare for them as well. So I really think that the government should probably engage uh, effectively um, and collaborate and, and do so quietly. Let's get the business done so that there is no threat of interruption in schools. So that there is no threat of damage to the economy. There's no threat of, um, you know, job action or any of the other negative negative things that come out of bargaining. Um, But I really feel and I said it before, you know, if if this whole QP situation is, is superimposed on all bargaining agents, whether it's at the provincial level or local level, and this goes to arbitration as it could, what's an arbitrator going to say? when we have inflation at 8%, right? Mm. This this one and a half, 1.25, 2% is going to look like pennies. And the government is going to get destroyed, likely. Um, So it's probably not in their best interest to lose that battle. So I would say keeping it contained, keeping it quiet, keeping it private, keeping it confidential, doing the business, finding agreement where it can be found, and then taking those larger items to maybe a third party, to uh, you know, analyze the the merits of the arguments, the proposals, the numbers, and then let them try and impose something that might be on par with other essential services, right? I, this this whole threat of essential service legislation and interfering with um, you know, our ability to strike and QP's and ability to go on on job action um, that's usually connected to a really significant pay increase. And so mm-hmm. put that on the table and say, fine, you know, let's talk about the potential of taking away your right to strike, but let's match it with compensation that, that is fair and declared fair by some third party who's not the government and, and maybe not the union either. But um, I think there's a possibility that we can find common ground for many issues on the table. Compensation might have to go somewhere else.
0: That may be one of those things where I think uh, when, when we see labor negotiations, bringing in a mediator, we kind of read that as a bad sign, but maybe it's not a bad sign. Maybe that should be a, an initial step.
2: Uh, it's a great comment. And and I think in order to keep it at the table, you know, to try and uh, find that common ground, maybe a little give, a little take, um, I think the goal is to start in good faith and to have that conversation, and to hammer out what you can. And that way, you don't need that assistance. You know, it can be very expensive, it can be uh, take a lot of time to have a mediator work through every little piece. If you can sort out a lot of the little pieces, get agreement, move them aside, and then take on the big things with the help of a mediator, or, you know, whatever the uh, ultimate outcome will be arbitration, and so on, um, then deal with them in kind of separate places. But, you know, I, I agree, I think there has to be some um, starting point of willingness to collaborate, willingness to to have a little give and take. I think that absolutely exists, even with QP. You know, they might be way out of, in front of the other unions, but I think that they probably started with a lot of little things that they could agree upon. It's just that you know they moved quicker through their their process and got here before anyone else.
0: That's um, a good place to bring me sort of full circle in this, um, because with QP. CUPE um, being in the positions they are. And I think you guys might agree that, you know, one of the advantages in 2019 was, um, sort of the collective effort, sort of all the unions working together, um, as, as, you know, granted different issues, different positions, different outcomes wanted, but in terms of where we are now, QP being kind of out front of everybody, um, and maybe Jan, I'll start with you, you know, is there a danger to that United front with QP being out front and you know, what happens if things go smoothly with some unions or doesn't, and then doesn't go smoothly with other unions? Um, What happens if QP is out on strike and um, all, you know, your custodians and your support workers are, not there and teachers are kind of like more pressure is kind of put on teachers, I guess, you know, what does the next couple of weeks next couple of months look like and what's kind of concerning for you?
1: Well, as the president of the Guelph labor council, I'm going to speak from that perspective. Mm -hmm. We're always in solidarity with our union brothers and sisters and, um, we hope they get a great deal. That's fantastic. I, I would be very pleased for that. Um, it's two different you know we're different bargaining units and yeah it does have an impact at the school level um it, but it also would when when if we have to go out on strike but like we have in the past it, it impacts the schools but as far as I'm concerned there would never be any any bad blood or or bad feelings um we want them to get the best deal that they can get because they deserve it and so do we um and I'll be out there on the line with them, as Dave knows, because him and I have both walked picket lines together supporting other other unions, OSSTF, we supported CUPE, we've supported uh, non-education unions, we, uh, you know, blocked trucks from getting in, <laughs> <laughs> blocked buses of scabs getting in from different places. So um, that's something, as far as I'm concerned, I'm always going to be in support um, of other unions, and I, I would never... Uh, Wish them any ill, ill, um, because you know they've had to take job action. That's just part of what what we have to deal with. Well.
0: David, are you are you worried about using losing that united front? Or are you with with Jen on this?
2: Uh, no, I agree with Jen. I think you know again in education it's a little different because you have a variety of uh, workers and and unions representing those workers, and then we also have that separation of central versus local. Um, every union feels that they have the support of their membership and they feel that they have their membership's best interests at heart, and that will be the priority for each individual union. We always hope that the overlap between, uh, member needs is similar across all educator unions. Um, it may or may not be uh, the strategy may also differ from one union to another, and it may be impacted significantly by the distribution of workers within that union. So again, we look at CUPE, you know, they feel that they have an incredibly strong strike mandate. They have a significant population of workers that are earning under $40,000, which is in Ontario these days, it's so low. Mm. So They may feel that uh, that um, urgency, in trying to achieve something uh, significant and earlier than the other unions, I don't think that uh, that detracts from our goals or changes our goals uh, as the you know Catholic teacher union. Um, again, I, I, you know, solidarity always, Uh, I will not, you know, point the finger or blame QB for going out in front. Uh, you know, they they have a strategy. They feel that they've got the support of their membership and I give them, you know, all the power to go and support their members, whichever way they feel is best. And we're going to do the same. Uh, and again, the hope is that we're not going to be divided through the process that all education workers are going to come out on top in the end. And frankly, that's the purpose of the labor movement: is to raise the bar for all workers. Whether it's you know teachers who are supporting the custodians, or the custodians who are supporting the su- support staff, or whether it's all educators supporting nurses or other you know labor unions, we're all trying to do the best we can to raise the bar for every worker in Ontario, uh, across Canada, and and across the world. Really, that's the labor movement in a nutshell. So uh, we're going to continue with that. Uh, you know, philosophy of solidarity um, locally, provincially, and, um, and hopefully everyone gets what they need. I'm going to ask you to make
0: predictions, but sitting here on October 18th, um, David, how do you feel about the future?
2: Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's a heavy question, right? Yeah. Uh, I am hopeful um you know despite the election results despite the threats that are coming from the government i'm i'm always hopeful Uh, i know that the relationship that i have uh with jen with other local leaders i know that the relationships that exist among provincial leaders uh in in all the unions um that there is strength in unity there is strength in union there is strength in uh membership Uh, We're all in this together, and I feel that just as much now as I did back in 2019, 2020. um, And I think because we've come through the pandemic and been able to be so incredibly adaptable and successful in what we do in the classrooms, I think people feel empowered now to really stand up and say, we deserve this. So I am hopeful that we're going to get something that reflects our value and, and what we deserve. And Jen, last word to you.
0: How do you feel right now on October 18th? <laughs>
1: um, I agree with everything that Dave just said. Um, I am hopeful. I hope that we can come to some kind of a, a, an agreement that benefits our members, both provincially and locally. I mean, that's always the hope when, when you're going into bargaining. That's your goal. Um, and I'm hoping the government will come to their senses and and be reasonable and fair, and so we will just have to see.
0: <laughs> I couldn't have. I couldn't have left it somewhere better myself. Uh, Jennifer Hash and David Dalduca, thank you so much for joining me today, and uh, we will see where we end up in the next couple of weeks and months. But uh, good luck to you and your bargaining, and and uh, thanks for coming on the podcast.
1: Thank you.
2: Thank you.
0: And once again, that was Jennifer Hesch and David Del Duca. You can keep up to date with the latest developments from the OECTA at their website, catholicteachers.ca. And you can get in touch with the local unit at oectawellington.ca. And for the ETFO, you can access the main union website at etfo.ca. And you can reach out to the local office at ugefto. Ca. Of course, if there is job action by Ontario's teachers, you will probably hear about it without too much of an effort, including here on Guelph Politico. But that is it for this edition of the Guelph Politicast. The music for the Guelph Politicast comes from KPM Classics and Sid Dale. The Guelph Politicast is usually recorded at CFRU, Guelph Campus and Community Radio, and you can find out more about CFRU at CFRU.ca. You can download the Guelph Politicast every Wednesday from Apple, Stitcher, Google, TuneIn, and Spotify, and when you subscribe to the Guelph Politicast channel, you'll get an episode of Open Sources Guelph on Mondays and an episode of End Credits on Fridays. You can follow Guelph Politico on social media at Politico Guelph on Facebook and at Guelph Politico on on twitter you can follow me at Adam a. Donaldson on twitter and instagram and you can send me an email at adamadonaldson at gmail.com and finally if you'd like to help financially support the work of guelph politico you can get all that information at guelphpolitico.ca slash donate and lastly after the finally for all the latest local political news check out guelphpolitico.ca where we will have a new episode of the guelph politicast for you next week and until then